To find out more about the series, please go to virgilkaylock.uk. The Strange Tales of Virgil Kaylock. The Urn. Chapter One. The year was 1925. Two years had passed since the events at Winchester Street. Life carried on much as before. My work at the British Museum continued to roll on, and my life seemed dull and empty, but for the time I spent with Dorothy Bell. She appeared to have no idea of the intensity of my feelings for her, or if she did, she was clever enough to disguise it. Certainly, I was unable to discover the nature of her feelings towards me, but she had consented to meet with me fairly regularly, and I felt emboldened enough to consider that our relationship had entered a more formal stage. When a party was announced at the museum, I was delighted to invite Dorothy to accompany me, and even more delighted that she accepted. Mr. Kaylock, a word! However, to my great annoyance, Rather than mixing with the illustrious guests and flirting with Dorothy, Mr. Chidlow, the curator, insisted that it was my job to be present as an employee, an attendant watching over the exhibits. It is our raison d'etre to inspire the public, Kaylock. Be polite, be alive and be informed. You will not leave your post, understood? To my surprise and humiliation, Dorothy chose to attend anyway. Won't you feel awkward without a partner? No, not at all. I'm a journalist. I'm not letting a perfectly good invitation go to waste. The British Museum had grown to contain the mountain of riches pilfered from the Empire, and though the heady days of expansion were past, exhibits arrived daily and building work was almost continuous. Sir Richard Moston had invited London society to witness his bequest of prehistoric remains, coins and other artefacts to the museum, and London society had obliged. So that we may stand on the shoulders of our forefathers and with wisdom and good judgment look forward to a new age of enlightenment and a new world built on truth, on knowledge and on science. Thank you. The event was held in the great court of the museum, which was busy with over 300 guests. There were canapes and drinks and a small orchestra too, I was stationed at the back, at a cabinet near the wall, well out of the way. As I stood behind a row of glass shelves, feeling foolish, I passed the time by scouring the room for glimpses of Dorothy. Unlike me, she was free to flit and socialise in the throng, and I could occasionally catch sight of her, glass in hand, animated, beautiful, and out of reach. Right, here we are. Uh, this you will find to be of some interest. Yes, do gather round. Uh, can you see? There we are. Squeeze in. Good. Sir Richard was giving a personal tour of his collection, and about 15 people gathered around my display. Now, this one I call my Cabinet of Oddities, because we don't know much about any of them, and it is valiantly guarded by, um, uh, what's your name? Um, Virgil Kaylock. Kaylock, excellent. Fine job, too. Right, what have we got? Yes. Now... This is obviously ancient Egyptian, but nobody seems to know what it is. Do you know what it is? No, sir. No, no one does. 
Uh, that's a curious, indecipherable manuscript. Most mysterious. Possibly Sumerian, is that right? Well... And this is some sort of monstrous egg from some forgotten creature. I picked it up in China. Excuse me. Yes? What's that? What's what? That. No idea. <laughs> it's a funerary urn, we think. Is that right? Yes, sir. Well, go on, Kalok. Tell us what you know. Well, it's a funerary urn. Yes, I just said that. Uh, um, the urn is ancient. It's Roman, approximately second century. It's made of marble and is heavily decorated. We have similar exhibits in our collection, but this one has been used relatively recently. It contains the ashes of someone unknown. It has a wax seal and was sealed no more than 50 years ago. It seems to depict a winged serpent. That's right. Some vandal went and used a perfectly good Roman antique for his mortal remains. Now that is selfishness on the scale of genius. We can't put it in the Roman rooms because it's got some fellow's ashes in it. And we can hardly just empty the contents out. So it's in no man's land. It'll all get sorted, no doubt. And now, over here are the coins, about 800 at the last count. Some of them date from the Iron Age. As the group moved on, the gentleman who had asked the question remained. He was a tall man, about 65 years old, with a full head of white hair and a grey beard. Not fashionably dressed, but he was smart. He bent at a comical angle to stare intently into the display case, playing with his glasses with nicotine-stained fingers, putting them on and then almost immediately taking them off again. Not Sumerian. Excuse me, sir? Yes, I say, it's not Sumerian. You can be sure of that. Really? Why? Sumerians wrote in cuneiform on clay tablets 3,000 years ago. This is not Sumerian. Right. They made marks in wet clay. This is carved, chiseled onto a stone slab. Could be, hmm, Etruscan. Etruscan? Roman, perhaps, from 700 BC. And what does it say? The gentleman looked up at me, quizzically. It says that if you work in the British Museum with ancient languages, it would be a good idea to have a working knowledge of early Etruscan. Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. An education can make one a little smug. Yes, yes, it's all very interesting. Good day. He ambled off to join Sir Richard and his coins, which was a great relief, as it offered me the opportunity to glare at Dorothy across the room. Her head was thrown back in laughter, while a well-dressed man entertained her. I felt deflated and depressed. I wanted to be laughing loudly with Dorothy. Instead, I was standing like a servant behind a glass case. Then, to make the situation worse, they came over. Oh, Virgil! You look so bored. <laughs> you look like an exhibit. We've come to talk to you. Is that allowed? This is Sir James Waverley. How do you do? How do you do? And he's the Earl of Danby. He was about 30. He was handsome and wealthy. And he wasn't stuck behind a display case. We've come to see your wares. How are you finding the evening? I found it humiliating. It's a, a wonderful night, Your Lordship. Oh, please, forget the Lordship. Call me James. So, what's this lot? It's a collection of curiosities. Gosh, look at that. It's an egg. Oh, it's huge. What could have laid that? We're not sure. <laughs> it's a curate's egg. Oh, that must have hurt. Poor curate. <laughs> it's probably ostrich. And this looks revolting. What is it? Something disgusting and formaldehyde. It's probably somebody's apple and walnut jam. No, not for me, thanks. Oh. <laughs> so... You know your stuff, Virgil. Know what you've got here? Uh, well, it is, as yet, unsorted. We don't know the provenance of most of these objects, so for the time being, they are considered curios. This, I believe, is Etruscan. What's this? The urn is Roman, but... It's it... sealed. 
a wax seal. We think it's been reused in recent times. It holds the mortal remains of, well, someone unknown. Mind if I take a look? Um, For gentlemen like James Waverley, asking permission was a mere formality. A reply was unnecessary. Gosh, that's heavy. Curious. What's that on the seal? A snake? A winged serpent. Really? Interesting. Look, I need a drink. Dorothy? Uh, Gin Ricky, please. Virgil? I can't. I'm on duty. Oh, bad luck. The Earl of Danby winked at Dorothy and disappeared into the crowd. Patronising playboy. That's so judgmental. You don't know him. And you do? Well, I do now. He's interesting. He's interesting if too much money and self-entitlement is interesting. Virgil. Well, how is he interesting? Virgil, I'm working. I'm not seducing. He's interesting because he could be a story. He's rich, he's debauched, and he's a member of the aristocracy. He's a story. Well, I wouldn't want to spoil your evening by keeping you from flirting with your story. Oh, okay. She smiled, turned her head towards the throng, and breezed off into the crowd. I felt angry and ashamed. I had shown Dorothy a vile aspect of my personality at precisely the time I had intended the opposite. Then, to my surprise, a few minutes later, the Earl was back. Mr. Kaylock? Oh, hello. Sure I can't get you a drink. I could smuggle it to you in a canopic jar. Thank you, but I'm fine, thank you. Right. Uh, actually, look, do you know, that vase, I'd like to purchase it. Oh? What do you say? I'm afraid it's not for sale. This is a museum. Yes, I know that. Nevertheless, perhaps you'd find a way. What do you think? Fifty guineas? I stared at him in disbelief. After all, I doubt if it means much to anyone, and I've taken a fancy to it. It's a property of the museum. I can't sell it. It's not for sale. You could talk to Sir Richard. Yes, might do that. Might do that. But look here, if I purchased it from you, no one need know. I bet things go missing from here all the time. No, they don't. They are carefully logged and protected by the museum. I suggest you direct your inquiry to Sir Richard Moston or the main office. You're sure? Yes. Very. Right. Good idea. Oh well, just a thought. See you later. Dorothy punished me by avoiding me for the rest of the evening. I caught glimpses of her laughing and conversing with various socialites and dignitaries. And James Waverley, the Earl of Danby. I don't think I had ever felt more depressed. The evening drew to a close and Dorothy left without saying goodnight. It was late and the streets were dark and empty by the time I headed home. My flat in Coptic Street was a short five-minute walk from the museum. I took the same route every night, and I didn't need to look where I was going. So I looked down at the pavement in anger at the world and at myself. Sir! Sir! The voice jolted me from my brooding. Excuse me, sir. A question, sir. She was sitting in shadow on the front step of a house in Little Russell Street. Like many that live in the open air, she was surrounded by the bags and boxes that were the sum of her possessions. There were several beggars that worked the patch around the museum. Although they were kept away from the main steps, they would circulate in the surrounding area, which was often busy with tourists. Their presence was an uncomfortable reminder of the city that existed beyond Bloomsbury. Sir! One question, sir! In the busy crowds of the daytime, I would have walked on. But it was an empty street. Just the two of us. To ignore her would seem churlish. She was bent over something. She was stroking and petting an animal. Yes? 
What will you give, sir? The thing stood up on her lap. It was a cat. It looked at me with big, soulful eyes. Oh, uh, good evening to you and your friend. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have much. I have a penny. Will that do? Um, the mouse got in the corn. Perhaps seeds or a bit of bread. Sorry? Bread or even cheese. A feast. Scraps from the table. Nibble, nibble. What do I get? What do you want? Rats got the mouse. Sharp teeth. Very sharp. Nothing left. Not even the bones. I'm sorry. I'm not sure what you're getting at. Glory to him. Glory, glory. Right. Then came Topper. Mr. Topper saw him off, saw him off all right. Mr. Topper? Yes, yes, Mr. Topper. Mr. Topper took the rat, bit down hard, brought him home. He gets his. Your cat, Mr. Topper. Kept it, kept it to himself, bones and all. <gasps> He's come. He's come again. He brings me everlasting life. Oh, I see. Follow Look. him and live forever. It's true. And um, what will you give for that, eh? What will you give? What will you give to him? Thank you, I'm not interested. Good night. Stay, friend. Ask yourself, what would you give for everlasting life, eh? What would you give for that? What would you give? Her question followed me down the street. What will you give to him? I had been raised in a strict religious household, and I had been asked the same question repeatedly. The weight of it stifled me. After all, there was no correct answer apart from everything, which would be a lie, and that would be a sin. I was certainly a Christian, in an intellectual sense, and I had seen enough evil to know that its counterpart must exist. But faith, that was harder. I had no choice but to walk away and add some more guilt to my already substantial load. In a few short steps, I had forgotten the woman and her bleak concerns, and had gone back to my own. I arrived at work next morning to find Mr. Chidlow in a state of consternation. The police are on their way. Don't touch anything. There's been a break-in. How did they get in? What's missing, sir? No idea. The doors on the east side were forced. It'll take some time to find out what they got away with. Three miles of galleries and we need to go through it all. The museum will open late today. You are allotted Asia and the Middle East. Get over there and look it over. See what's missing. Quickly! Report back to me! I was on my way when it occurred to me to turn back and take a look in the cabinet of curiosities in the Grand Court. The glass had been smashed, and the urn was gone. For goodness sake, Caelog, what are you talking about? The Earl of Danby? A member of the aristocracy is not going to break into the British Museum in the dead of night and steal from the display cases, is he? Sir, I... And if by some bizarre chance he should do such a thing, he would take the Japanese jade or the Aztec gold. He is not likely to take a dusty urn. Mr. Chidlow... No, 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 it's nonsense. But if that's all that's missing, we may yet keep our jobs. Clear it up, Kaylock. For goodness sake, we open in an hour. The loss also came as a relief to Sir Richard Moston, who returned to inspect the damage. Well, our robber turns out to be a bit of a chump, doesn't he? The urn is the least valuable item in the collection. Poor fellow didn't know what he was looking at. The coins are worth a fortune. The incident was considered a near miss and was marked down as a failed attempt. It is clear that the person or persons involved were disturbed by the watchman. Rather than leave empty-handed, they grabbed the nearest object to hand and fled. Fortunately for us, the loss is minimal. The police came and went with as little fuss as possible, and the museum opened two hours late. The Earl of Danby was not mentioned. 
life carried on. For me, that meant solitude in the extensive basement of the museum. After a day or two without contact, I was begging Dorothy to see me. Dorothy, I, I think I may have behaved like a fool. Yes, I think you might have done. Sorry, it wasn't the best of nights. I've never seen you so grumpy. I had planned the evening differently. Yes, bad luck. And there was something about your Earl that put me in a mood. He's not my Earl, and you're still in a mood. Well, I can't bear the fact that he gets away with but it. Virgil, you don't know that he got away with anything. But he took it, I know but it. Of course he didn't. He tried to bribe me for it, of course he but took Virgil, it. Virgil, why would he want it? You don't believe me, he offered me money. No one need know. No one will miss it, he says. So call the police. Why are you protecting him? Well, why are you behaving like a jealous clown? <sighs> Look, I'm not after him, if that's what you think. He's just a story, that's all. Well, he might be a story. Did you know, he is the Grand Wizard of the Hellfire Club. That's interesting, don't you think? Hellfire Club? It's a secret, well, a secretish society. They like to maintain a reputation for devilry and outrage. Well, I've not heard of it. Well, they meet in caves in High Wycombe, of all places. Can you believe it? Politicians, lords, you know, society. They dress up and who knows what else. They might be sacrificing to Satan or they might be getting drunk and falling over. Either way, it would be a great story. Really? It was formed in the 18th century by Sir Francis Dashwood. All sorts of scandals. Surely there are more important things to write about. What? The world is falling apart. A bunch of depraved and bored aristocrats is the least of our problems. Really? Do you think that I can write about whatever I like? What I really want to write about? That I can get anything of any seriousness into print? I wrote a piece on the Coolidge inauguration. I wrote up a piece on Jack Hobbs. I wrote about the gold standard. I mean, do you think that any of them were accepted? No, every single newsworthy story goes to a man. Every single one. And I'm supposed to be writing about housekeeping and recipes. I only manage to keep my job because I make them laugh. If I'm lucky, they'll give me a pat on the head. And I put up with it from them because they pay me. But you, I thought better of you. You've no idea. I'm going back to work. Goodbye. Dorothy. Dorothy! I was letting myself down badly, and I was driving Dorothy away. I knew that I was doing the wrong things, saying the wrong things, but I couldn't seem to help myself. My resentment only grew. The Earl had got what he wanted. He wanted the urn, so he took it. He stole it for the hell of it, for fun. He could so easily steal Dorothy, too. I continued my work under a dark cloud, and without a word from her. As I was responsible for the cabinet of curios, I was tasked with finding their provenance, cataloguing and allocating them appropriately. There were about twenty objects in all. The Egyptian item turned out to be a child's toy. The manuscript was in old Arabic and appeared to be a bookkeeper's ledger. The thing in a jar was a jellyfish, and the ostrich egg was an ostrich egg. But it was the urn that I wanted to explain. I knew it was funereal and very common in Roman times. But whose ashes were inside it? The winged serpent was the only reference I had, and I rifled through the museum library for its meaning. Mr. Kaylock! 
This cannot continue. If you are to receive guests, please arrange to do so in your own time. I have made no arrangement that I am aware of, Mr. Chidler. Miss Bell is upstairs. She is waiting for you in Chinese ceramics. It is most inappropriate. Sorry, Mr. Chidler. Keep it short and return to your work as soon as you are able. Yes? Absolutely. Two minutes, yes? Yes, sir. That Dorothy should visit so abruptly without prior arrangement was most unusual. It was clear she intended to break with me and wanted to get it over with as quickly as possible. As I rushed through the galleries, I considered what I might say. Dorothy, Dorothy, can I apologise? Let me explain. What do you know about the urn? What? There, standing next to her, was a tall, bespectacled man about sixty years old with grey hair and beard, wearing an expression of concern. The same man that had spoken to me the night of the party. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, hello. I'm Virgil Kaylock. Professor Geisel, how do you do? This is Professor Henrik Geisel. He's a professor of ancient history. Do you know what it is, Virgil? The urn? The urn? Do you know what the seal means? Well, uh, yes, actually, I do. In mythology, the winged serpent Ophis Teratos guarded the frankincense groves of Arabia. In Aztec culture, it was known as Quetzalcoatl. It's an heraldic crest, Mr. Kaylock. It is the emblem of the Order of the Dragon. The order was adopted by the warlords of Wallachia in the 15th century and was associated with the most terrible acts of war. By the end of a century of horror, it came to be associated with one noble family. Well, that's um, a great help. Thank you. And Virgil, the seal, the winged serpent. It is the crest of the House of Dracula. In Chapter One of The Urn, written by John Ram, Virgil Kaylock was played by Nicholas Bolton, the young Kaylock, Daniel Fraser, Dorothy Bell, Ellie Turner, Professor Geisel, Hugh Ross, James Waverley, Josh Dillon, and Annie Renshaw was played by Sean Weber. The music was composed and performed by Neil Brand. The Strange Tales of Virgil Kaylock is supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. It is produced by Richard Varman, Martin Malone and John Ram. It is a Kaylock production. To find out more about the series, please go to virgilkaylock.uk.